Okay, let's pray. All right, Father, um, we know you're our Father, and we understand that the blood of your Son was given so that we would be uh, cleaned and cleansed and sanctified and made holy. Uh, we, we are coming before you today in great need of you to send your Holy Spirit uh, powerfully again and again and more and more and, and clothe us with Christ and cause Christ to be formed in us so that we have power to know and understand your love and power to walk out in newness of life and in the sanctification and purity you have already bought for us. Amen. Okay, so this is our Seeing or See the Scripture series, part three, um, How God Clothes Us, tracing the themes of nakedness and shame and clothing in the Bible. So this little bit uncomfortable topic, a little bit better than last time. Um, uh, our uh, key scripture is Hebrews 4.16, which says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, which is all the time if you're like me. So uh, in our first See the Scriptures uh, series message, we talked about the vine and fig tree theme, or more properly, the phrase that we see uh, repeated in the Bible every man under his vine and under his fig tree, right? And we learned, and in looking at that and, and picturing it, we learned to see that this is an image of the kingdom of God come on earth, which is now but growing. And it's a picture of us in unity with one another, uh, eating and drinking in plenty or under the blessing of God and safety with each other, and everybody from all the other nations being welcomed in to share that with us. We then looked at, um, at dual curses, the curse of being eaten by worms and the curse of being hanged on a tree. We remember the scripture where Moses wrote, cursed is he who is hanged on a tree. We contrasted Judas' death with Jesus' death, and we said, we deserve the judgment of Judas, but instead we get the resurrection of Jesus. So today, tracing the themes of nakedness and shame and clothing, and it says with minimal commentary, that means I'm not supposed to talk too much. My own notes. Okay, Genesis chapter two, everybody likes the beginning of Genesis, there's a garden, everything is cool. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8 says, After they had sinned, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which should have been a good sound, like 
like your spouse coming home or your, not all of you experienced this, but the sound of your kids yelling, Daddy! Like when, you, when you're first working your key in the door, it's like the best sound. Like, like this should have been a sweet sound. And the man and the wife, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So we see naked and not ashamed and naked and instinctively pulling leaves off trees. I don't know what they used for string or thread, but they found something and they sewed them together real quick and well, leaves wilt, so that's not, they, I mean, how long is that gonna last? And, and not a very good covering. Genesis 3 verse 10, God asked them like, who told you that you were naked? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So like verses before, there's nakedness but no fear and no shame. All of a sudden, Adam himself, without anybody telling him this, is identifying that, that he, he has to get covered and he's gotta get quick and he's gotta hide quick. It's like this instinctive thing First came the sin, then came the, the shame kind of rushed in with it, the need to be clothed. He f they felt it so strongly that they impulsively, instinctively started pulling leaves off trees to like, make little coverings for themselves. And then, Genesis 3, verse 21. Without any explanation, just out of the blue, we have this verse. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Whose skins? God, being so good, is immediately working to cover for them. Okay, like, just, just go back and, and imagine you're some sort of uh, angelic watcher of these events in Genesis. Like, the fall of man just occurred. You already saw Satan's fall moments or minutes or days or months or whatever before out of heaven, and, and now you see the fall of mankind. It's like a knife going through your heart. The, there must have been this terribly disturbing sense among all the angelic watchers that Everything is broken in a way we can't even wrap our minds around. It must have been shocking and incomprehensible. And then, and then, so the angels reflect God's heart. So he was not surprised, but his heart was pierced through at the fall of man. No. But what else is in God's heart besides the, the pain that he is sharing with Adam and Eve? In God's heart, is, is, it's filled with goodwill towards us, and he's immediately working to cover for them. He's like the ultimate father. Interestingly, his plan to perfect the man and his wife again was not to remove their shame and tell them they no longer need clothes. His solution was to kill something else and use its covering to cover them. Why might that have been? Prophetic foreshadowing. Prophetic, fore 
Prophetic foreshadowing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Jesus. Jesus. Good answer. The wages of sin is death. So what they had done, Caleb just said, was so bad that it brought death into the world. Like a, like a black hole suddenly appearing and sucking in part of the universe, right? It was so bad that it brought death into the world and separated them from God. The wages of disobeying God is death. But there's more. The clothes they made to cover themselves were not good enough. God did not deny that they needed covering. He gave them better clothes. And in doing so, he took away their shame. He covered it. Let's move ahead, tracing this theme of nakedness with shame through the Bible. In Genesis 9.22, Noah plants a vineyard, which is a very righteous thing to do. And he drinks of the wine. Not an unrighteous thing. Uh, He drank too much. uh, He drank enough that he, he lay uncovered naked in his tent. The Bible doesn't comment on that good or bad. Right? But what it does comment on is what one of his uh, sons did. Um, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Does it say Ham has sinned yet? It doesn't say so. But, but Ham goes and he gets his brothers and he's like, hey, dad's nude. Come on. Then Shem and Japheth, his other two sons, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So some of this stuff is a little hard for us to understand in American culture, Um, But in the Bible, we saw from the get-go that nakedness and sin and shame aren't really separable. So just hold that. Shem and Japheth get it. They're not just making sure that... They're making sure their father isn't spotted in the nude, but they're doing so much more than that, right? Can, Can you feel how important this is in the text? We won't comment on that anymore. We'll just move on. Exodus. In chapter 20, God is giving these laws. Like, all right, you know, build me an altar and worship me there, right? And bring your sacrifices and offerings. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar. So, like, they're not allowed to make stairs. Okay, think about this. All right, old days, we're in, like, kilts and robes and dresses, right? Men and women, I mean, their clothing's different, but, you know, I've got a robe on, I'm lifting up my knees like this. You know, if I'm walking up steps, I could be a little exposed there, right? So, so he tells them, you gotta have like a, an earthen ramp up to the altar, okay? So you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So that should make us a little uncomfortable there's no way to approach God without a covering. So this implies that if we act, you know, if like part of our garment accidentally flips up or something because we go upstairs, 
then, then we can't get near God because we can't be naked anymore near God like Adam and Eve could have been in the garden before they sinned and were cast out. And cover, sinned, were covered by God and yet cast out. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6. Um, we begin to see some of these laws. Leviticus 18 and uh, 20 is like this fascinating study on what God on God's purposes, God's thoughts on nakedness and sexuality, which are prescriptive for all of us. It says, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. That means God is boss and God is right and good. So God gets to say what's right and wrong, but more than that, God is right and so if he says it, it reveals what has always been right, what was right all along. So when God, set, God gives in Leviticus 18 all these principles about unlawful sexual relations, and he says, uh, you know, like, you can't go uncover, you know, this relative's nakedness or that relative's nakedness. You can't uh, have an uh, intimate act with an animal. You can't uh, do this or that. And he uses words like abomination, and, uh, and, and uncovering nakedness. Uh, he talks about homosexual uh, acts. Uh, he identifies that as an abomination. So, but it keeps using the phrase uncovering nakedness. So God desires that nakedness is in the right place in the right time that is in the marriage bed. But he will not permit it and, and powerfully works to cover our nakedness in other contexts, right? That's in his heart, to keep us covered and that there might be, not be unlawful sexual relations among us, nor that we would be ashamed, right? God is always covering our shame. In Hebrews 4, every, do you guys know Psalm 139? Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my thoughts from afar. Um, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. He goes on, uh, when David writes this wonderful psalm that we should probably all pretty well know, I don't really know it, I kind of sort of know it. As you can see, I misquoted it. Um, uh, it says that you uh, saw my unformed being. You, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So the eyes of the Lord penetrate through all coverings. We saw in Exodus that, uh, that we're supposed to have the right kind of clothes and the right kind of ramps so that our nakedness isn't exposed when we get near God. But then in Psalm 139, we see that God sees through the mother's womb and sees the unformed parts and is actively at work knitting together the baby in his mother before he was ever born or even had a chance to put clothing on. God sees through it all. In Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is nothing we can cover up from God. In fact, whatever we try to cover up 
is already open to God. Psalm 139 says he can see in the dark. Even the darkness is as light to you. From Deuteronomy through the prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, we see nakedness associated with a curse. That rebellion against God leads to nakedness and being driven away from the presence of the Lord. That sounds a lot like what happened to our first ancestors in the garden, right? Lamentations 1.8 says of the people of God, that he nicknames Jerusalem, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. There's more hiding associated with the curse that comes with sin. But in the prophet Hosea, we see something wonderful. It is God's response to our frequent rebellion against him. We see so clearly that God is all about going after us when we have run away in shame. In Hosea, God is ready to buy us back. In Hosea, he pays the price to clothe us. And he receives his people, the church, like a husband awaits his bride on the wedding day. Wonderful. Now let's look a little closer at one of the prophets. The prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. And this is our focus for today. Zechariah chapter 3 says, uh, Then he showed me, this is the prophet Zechariah seeing this vision, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Right? So you've got Satan, he's like this powerful lawyer, and he's got a case against this guy who's the high priest. The high priest always represents all the people, right? We've said. And then Jesus, the, this, uh, this image of God, this angel of the Lord, the, the, the presence of God in, in bodily form, Jesus is there. This high priest representing the whole people is here. And then here's this, this, uh, this brilliant and sly lawyer with his serpentine tongue bringing against Joshua, therefore bringing against all of us, um, uh, the case against him. He's standing there to accuse him, and we're about to find out if he's accusing him on good grounds or unreasonably. And the Lord said to Satan, oh, wait a second, he didn't get a chance to get a word out of his mouth in accusation. God interrupted him. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, that's God's people as represented by the high priest, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, like the people of God, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So aren't God's people like a stick that was in a campfire or in a furnace that was already smoldering? but God grabbed it and pulled it out so it was saved and not burned. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, that's Jesus, clothed with filthy garments. 
So picture that with your nose. What must those filthy garments have smelled like? Think of all the nasty things you can imagine. And that's what he's wearing. And he represents all of us. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, his attendants, remove the filthy garments from him. So he is removing, so, so, so the high priest, like all of us, are clothed, but, but the clothing is itself filthy and unsuitable for being in the presence of the Lord. And God says, change that out. Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, so first, the first words out of anybody's mouth in this heavenly courtroom scene weren't Satan's, you know, bringing his case against Joshua, who we see clearly deserved to be accused of not being worthy to stand in the clean presence of God because of his uncleanness. The first words out of anybody's mouth in this eternally occurring uh, or, or, or in this, let's say, cosmic courtroom scene, the first words out of anybody's mouth were God's and the first thing he did was Jesus rebuked Satan. And then he spoke to us, and he said, or, or then he spoke to his attendants, and he said, remove the filthy garments. And then he said to us, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then, and then, this uh, prophet Zechariah, who's seeing this cosmic courtroom vision in heaven, pipes up and speaks into the, the actors, the, into the, uh, the, the people that are do, experiencing this in the vision. And he says, let them put a clean turban on his head, right? So, so with no mention of the underlying nakedness, Jesus jumps right from remove the filthy garments and putting pure clothing on him, which is better than clean clothing. There's a supernatural purity to it, to the clothing with which the Lord has clothed and is keeping us clothed. That was not grammatically correct. There's a supernatural purity to the clothing that the Lord keeps on us by his own power and plan. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord is the last person who comments, and he comments not vocally, but with his presence. It says, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So in his filthiness, either God came to him or he was brought before the Lord, uh, so this case against him could be tried, and, and God was there present with him. God is present with us when we have sinned. God was present with us uh, before we ever came near him. He was there. God condescended from heaven to be near to his people who were clothed in filth that we kind of did ourselves and, and were even born in, born into. And then at the end of it all, he has not left us nor forsaken us. This is a precious passage. It goes on, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. And he tells him th some things. He commands him to walk in his ways, to keep his charge. And then he goes on in verse 10. In that day, 
declares the Lord of hosts. That means the God of all the armies of heaven. So Jesus is saying, in that day, my father, the commander of the angels of heaven, says, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Praise God. It's a sign of rest. And that rest is now because we haven't had to make ourselves clean. He made us clean. Therefore, our spirits are at rest before him, even when our hearts condemn us. Okay, more on nakedness. We move on in Isaiah 58, 7. It says that, you know, Isaiah 58, the passage on taking a day of fasting, right? It says that fasting with prayer naturally leads us to covering over the sins of others. He talks about, like, what's a true fast? He says, is it not to share your bread? It's not just to not eat bread. It's to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him. This has always been in God's heart. Why then are we so ashamed to come into his presence? This sermon is to challenge that. When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. How will God hide himself from us when he has become flesh and blood like us? He will not. Again, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that when we see someone hungry and we feed them, or when we see a stranger naked and we clothe them, or someone in prison and we visit them, we do it to him. How can that be? This is because Jesus is so near to the poor and needy and ashamed and naked that when someone helps them, it's regarded as though they have done it to the Lord who is with them, who is near to them. Likewise, covering the shame of a brother who has sinned against you is one way you draw near to God. But it is at the end of the Gospels that we see someone else naked. This time, it's not our fellow man. It's not me or us. It's Christ. We see an image of a man uh, naked and ashamed, exposed before the crowd. We see a man who though it says God is robed in, in robed in glorious light, like light that has more substance than clothes, like his holiness is covering enough, or, or rather his holiness is so holy that there's no such thing as nakedness in the person of God. And yet, he condescended out of that wonderful and blameless state And he took on the blame of me and you. And he actually was naked. And we don't paint that in pictures because it's too disrespectful. But in the Bible, in the crucifixion scene of Christ, uh, they took everything from him. But he gave it up along with his own life of his own accord. And what he was doing was living out the the prophesied heavenly scene from Zechariah chapter 3. Jesus was taking on Zechariah's 
or I mean, uh, uh, Joshua, the high priest representing all the people, he was in one moment in time, in real time, taking all of the nakedness from all his people before and beyond in the timeline of history. He was taking all of our nakedness and wearing it. So then, it says in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, even if it's our own fault, right? Or danger or sword? Nothing can now separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In Luke and Acts, we see that God does not just clothe us with his own righteousness. He clothes us with power from on high by the Holy Spirit so that we can actually be his witnesses, which doesn't just mean tell about him. It means we're, we're clothed with power from on high by the Holy Spirit to be his ambassadors. So an ambassador is a what of the country he represents a representative. An ambassador is one person representing the whole nation out there in public. So, so the Holy Spirit clothes us with power to represent God. Think about this theme of nakedness that we've touched on through the Bible, nakedness and shame, and, and now bring it to Luke and Acts when the Holy Spirit is poured out on believers to empower us to represent God. So that's real, and some of you are like, I don't do a very good job at that. So there is an actual sacredness and outworkingness, uh, outworking of God's righteousness into the world that we do in real space and time where the presence of God and the, the holiness of God is revealed to the world when they when, when they experience our serving them and our teaching them, and when we have a chance to clothe the naked and feed the hungry and minister the gospel to those who are spiritually without clothing. So wonderfully, we, even though we yet sin, we are truly and powerfully righteous and truly and powerfully doing the will of God and the deeds of God in the world. It says we're his hands, like we are, we are like God's hands doing God's work. And in Revelation, in the last chapters of the Bible, like at the beginning, God's people are again found in a garden. You remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that we're in a garden in, in Revelation. I got my wife. Praise God, baby. <laughs> got three. Good. We got a low hand. A little hand. Okay. So there's a garden in Genesis. We know that. There's a garden in Revelation. So there's the throne of God. It's in the middle of the people of God. So all the people of God are living together and God's in the midst of them. And he's giving us light and life such that it says they don't need the sun. Like God is their light. Previously, he gave us that light and he said, you're the light of the world. 
And, and now it's like we're so near to God in Revelation, which is now and increasing and future, that, that the light of God in us, like God sep- coming from being separate to coming to being in and next to and among us, he's so near to us now. He's so unashamed to be with us that he calls us by his name. And his light is our light. And that light is the light of the world. And the light overcomes darkness and shame. It actually drives it away. So in Revelation, our point was that there's a garden. So if you read the last chapters of Revelation, which are fantastic, which are wonderful, um, you see the throne of God. So God is present and the people of God are there and God is our light. And there's this river. Imagine you're thirsty. Here's, here's a, little, uh, a little communion cup full of water. Nope, here's a river. It's this river of the water of life. The spirit of God himself is as water, completely quenching all thirst of all kinds, right? So, so this river is flowing right through the middle of the streets of the city. That, that kind of means it's like everywhere. And like in the Garden of Eden where there was a river and it divided and went to water the whole earth, that's what's happening, but now it's, it, think of it this way, it's going down every street. It doesn't say that, but I think that's what it's trying, I think that's what it's getting at. The Holy Spirit is going everywhere and giving refreshing drink of life to everyone in the, in, in the community of the people of God. And you remember there's a tree there, right? So it grows like in the middle of the garden like it did in Genesis? No, it's this tree, it says, and the tree of life was there growing on either side of the river. Think of a tree of life. You know those, uh, those trees like in the tropics that it's like one root system but many tree trunks and an entire forest is really just one tree that, that goes underground and, and comes up and it bears leaves and fruit. Like, like the whole forest is one tree. Have you ever heard of that? I think that's really cool. I like botany and arboreal science and stuff. So, so that's what it's like in the garden of the Lord, which is us flourishing because he's the vine and we're the branches and he has watered us like the tree in Psalm 1. And, and there's fruit everywhere. In Revelation, it says it bore fruit every month, like a new fruit. Um, I thought that plants only like budded and bore fruit once. Uh, Greg likes to buy Catherine these uh, rose bushes that, that bloom many times, which means you get a little rose hip under the blooms with seeds, so that's a fruit, like many times during the season, I think. Is that right? Like, so you get fruit multiple times. So uh, horticulturists have succeeded in, uh, in uh, helping this plant to look more like what we are becoming to, are, are, are growing to look like. And that is like fruitful times fruitful because the Lord is in us. So in Revelation, at the beginning, like at the beginning of Genesis, at the end of Revelation, you see the Garden of Eden, and it's actually trees and plants and fruit, and God really did plant a garden. But now we are the planting of the Lord. So in answer to uh, Hannah's question 
where did the Garden of Eden go? Um, you, we are the Garden of Eden, and the earth is being filled with these trees and this fruit. So in Revelation, in the last chapters of, Bible, of the Bible, like at the beginning, God's people are again in a garden. That's because we are the garden. And here in this garden, are we naked again like Adam and Eve? No. We are fully clothed in the most radiant of garments. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, it says of us, the bride of Christ, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen. I want you to imagine, imagine like the most expensive fabric you can think of, like the fanciest and finest of fabrics. That's what this is. Fine linen, bright and clean, or bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That doesn't mean that we used to be sinners and now we never sin, and we're, everything we do is righteous, and, and that's like clothing with which we dress ourselves, and we look pretty darn good, if I do say so myself. This, these righteous deeds are righteous deeds that God prepared in advance for us to do and empowered us to do. So this righteousness is really the righteousness of the Lord that is clothing us. Fine linen, bright and pure to clothe herself. Christ's exchange of taking our sin and nakedness upon himself and clothing us in righteousness has reached its ultimate fulfillment here in Revelation as foreshadowed in the garden when God killed that lamb or ram and first covered the nakedness of our progenitors. Our Father's unstoppable, embracing Love for us means several things. For one thing, we can be people who make mistakes and bad decisions, but we don't have to hide that at all. Our nakedness and shame is covered. We can live in this close, family-like community with each other with no need at all to hide when we make mistakes. Because when I suffer or sin, you are patient with me and you're quick to cover up my sin with love. Like it says in uh, Colossians 3, love covers over a multitude of sins. And when you sin, my goal is to let you confess it, then quickly bless you and proclaim over you God's forgiveness. And I go right on respecting you and treating you as family. You sinned against me, I forget about it. Love covers over a multitude of sins. You made an embarrassing mistake, I say, you wouldn't feel so bad if you knew how I screwed up this week. I forget about it. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And though it is, admittedly, a little embarrassing when I admit to one of the pastoral people in my life my mistake, and I'm often doing that, I am always confident that the grace of God is abundant to cover my mistake. It's not like because I do something wrong I become less a brother of Christ, or less a brother to you. So we can be people who make mistakes and bad decisions, but we don't have to hide that for shame, you'll find out what I did. On the contrary, I'm going to tell you about my mistakes and my bad decisions straight up. 
I ain't even going to try to make myself look good because in Christ, my shame is continually covered by the blood of Christ. And he invites me to confess my sin and every day he empowers me to be renewed in his love. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit helped me with that more than anything else. For another thing, because God deeply loved me when I was lost in sin and continues to love me today despite my sin, it awakens in me a love for him. How can I not love a father like this? That's why the Bible says, we love him because he first loved us. This thing about God covering my sin and shame is actually the reason we love God. It's not like we love him if we weren't always confessing our sins to him and experiencing his embracing grace. He who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. As untamed and fearfully holy as God is, it's quite safe to approach him to confess sinning against him. In fact, the Bible has two precious names for the throne upon which God sits. Did you know this? In the Hebrew scriptures, God's throne is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Awesome. So if you draw near to God when you sin, what are you going to get? You are going to get mercy. And in the New Testament, the throne of God has a similar name. It's called the throne of grace. In Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And because I'm often sinning, I'm often in need. What can you expect to get from God when you go to him weak, broken, hurt, naked, or ashamed? Grace. Grace that covers your shame and grace that empowers to heal and to do the righteous deeds that God prepared in advance for you to do. Finally, if God has so clothed me with righteousness and power, then he has likewise, likewise clothed you just the same. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Can you see that when you look at your brother and sister in the pews near you? See, the old is gone, the new has come. When the Bible says we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, it means that we no longer regard anyone as if what we see is what we get. I look at you when you sin and I think, Someone died for that sin. The Son of God knew no sin, but he became sin for your sake, and you became the righteousness of God. This thing about God clothing us completely changes my view of other Christians. I no longer do that thing we are used to, where if I do wrong, you shame me, and if you do wrong, I shame you. God has clothed you with his own righteousness, just like he clothed me. 
So I work hard to keep from publicly embarrassing you. And even behind closed doors, I make it my practice to not say anything bad about you. But I will ask for advice privately from a pastoral figure about how to love and build up another Christian. Beyond that, I don't tell stories about you. Christianity is the end of gossip. Christianity is the end of shaming each other, just as it is the end of being ashamed. Now, will we live this out perfectly? No. But the amazing thing is that Christ did not call the best of all people to be sanctified. He called sinners. In fact, Christian community is often marked more by making mistakes and then making amends than by not making mistakes in the first place. But the church should be the safest place to make mistakes. When we fail to love one another well, when we embarrass each other or fail to recognize Christ in each other, let there be grace for that too. And as quick as you can, forgive each other from the heart as God has forgiven you. And clinging to Christ, we continually find healing. And those who are mature among us are always restoring those who fall in a spirit of gentleness, not beating people with a stick. We do this, of course, because when we pray, we admit to the Lord, it was your gentleness that made me what I am. Psalm 18:35. If I am anything at all, it is solely because Christ lowered himself down from heaven and stooped to lift me up. It was his humility that has made me what I am. Now that he our Lord and teacher has washed our feet, we also should wash one another's feet. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No exceptions, including family members. Because family members are the hardest to love. If we could just realize that we are already naked and then really, that we really have nothing to say for ourselves, like all of my righteousness is really filthy, if we could be that honest with ourselves, then we're ready to meet God, the real God, the God who already sees right through us, the God who is more aware of our sin and shortcomings than we are, the God who is so holy that light comes from him, who still perfectly hates sin, our sin, and who, against all odds, for some strange reason I do not yet understand, decided that he would become sin for us. If we were to periodically meditate on the willingness of God to become dirty and abused and publicly naked and ashamed on our behalf, then we would no longer so strongly feel the need to cover up our sin, but we would confess it more easily in pastoral relationships and to one another and to him. And if we did that, we would happen upon the most wonderful thing that is found anywhere in the universe. We would find out that this very God, this most holy, holy, holy God, who most perfectly understands and detests sin, is willing and able, no, delighted and always ready to receive back a sinner who confesses his or her sins straightforwardly. 
we would find that God is not, not like what we always thought him to be, always needing to be pleased and appeased, always needing us to perform well and behave properly, or else he would be disappointed in us or cease to love us. Indeed, we would find the very thing that the prodigal son found upon ashamedly limping back to the father he thought was angry with him. We would find that our heavenly father's face is toward us. His eye is upon us. His heart is for us. And he never really stops running towards us to receive us back with open arms. The reason I talk about the gospel in pretty much every single sermon is because nobody and nothing I have ever encountered has more deeply impacted me than the kindness of God. And this surprising and wonderful discovery I made years ago, that my father's love is never small and never runs out. Like that song, your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. And as it is written by the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. They're new every morning. Like, it's not like a, a, a pie and I used up this much, this much, this much, this much, and, and here's, you know, I get back around to the end of my life and I've used up the last mercy just in time. Whew! It's, his mercies are fully new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Please come forward to share the bread and the wine at the table of Christ the faithful.